Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, my TV ministry is gone, but it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here and you're not in your pajamas. That's very, very good. No, it's good to be back. I mean, to talk about a major uh, understatement, it is really, really sweet to be back. And yet I'm thankful for the technology we've had, Uh, particularly uh, Travis Orr, who's actually on the sound today, and Ellie Wedell have been doing a masterful job every Wednesday and Saturday. They've been filming, and Ellie's been editing every week and making this all possible. So I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful to be, uh, to be back. You know, there's something about being back. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher, uh, English preacher, in the mid-20th centuries, 20th century, and he said this about preaching. He said, in live preaching, he says, there's a work that happens that as the word is broken, the Spirit of God is working through the preacher to the listener, and, and the Spirit is affecting you as the word's going out. And I see that, and it encourages the preacher. And then as you see the Spirit of God moving in me to break the word, it encourages you, and there's a dynamic between the Spirit of God and the people of God that you don't have in video. So it's really, really good to be preaching among you again. And then you may ask, well, why are we doing a series on marriage? Well, I would say COVID-19 would be one. It all happened when the first day of quarantine uh, I found myself in the dining room just freezing, wanting the heat on. Uh, Carol complained that it was blazing hot in there. We met at the thermostat. Words were had. And I'll just say she went away thinking, this is going to be a long quarantine. A week later, she said to me, she was, do you think you can do a series on marriage and how to have a better marriage? I said, sure, why? I can't imagine why. No, the reason we're doing a marriage series is because the elders asked for this about nine months ago. They said, let's have another teaching on marriage. It doesn't take a pandemic uh, to see that our marriages are strained and oftentimes a struggle. And uh, they want that to be in the regular diet of the teaching in this church. You know, there is an irony that all the progression we've made in life with travel, education, with, um, with food, with home comforts, all the technology, we still struggle with marriage. We still struggle with being happy in marriage. 
And so it, it might serve us well to take a look again at Genesis chapter 2. What's God's design for marriage? Now, when we start a marriage series, I recognize that many of you are maybe flourishing in your marriage, really having a time that's sweet and godly, and I'm thankful for that. But I also recognize that for some of you, this is going to be a time of languishing. It's going to be a time of trial. You may wonder, did I marry the right person? Will I endure till the end in faithfulness? And then there's singles, of course. They may be inwardly groaning right now, thinking, ah, oh, I came back from a pandemic to hear a series on marriage. Or you want to be married. Well, let me remind you this. What we're going to be looking at in terms of this series is really relational dynamics that are appropriate across the board. And not just that, but God seems to use the marriage as a lens through which to explain his saving work among people. You know, the second chapter of Genesis, we have a wedding ceremony. The very last chapter in Revelation, in the last section of the last chapter, we have a wedding ceremony. And all through the scriptures, you have God constantly using this marital language regarding how he intersects his people and how he saves them. So I think there's much to be gained from this. So what we're going to do is today just take a high view, some principles of what God has designed marriage to be. Over the succeeding weeks, we'll be looking a little bit into silos in terms of looking at um, a man in marriage, a woman in marriage, communication in marriage, sexuality in marriage, conflict resolution in marriage. So we'll look at things individually, but, but here it's just a, a high-level view. So, so, so five principles I want to give you. Number one will simply be this, that God designed marriage to be a partnership. God designed marriage to be a partnership. You see that in verse 18. Look with me at 18. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, th this ought to shock us. If we, were leading, if we were reading from chapter 1 on, this ought to shock us. Why? Because seven times previous to this, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Now it's not good. What's not good? Well, what's not good is that he's alone. And, and that idea of being alone isn't just lacking, like you forget a minor spice in a recipe. This is a substantial deficiency that God's... And this isn't man's opinion, by the way. This is God rendering his verdict. It's not good that he's alone. And why does he say this? Well, again, if you had read in the first two chapters, you would see that all creation has a complement. Right? So in the first three days of creation... God creates the heavens, he creates the seas, and he creates the earth. But they're not filled. It's on the fourth and the fifth and the sixth day that he fills the heavens with stars and sun and moon. He fills the seas with fish, and he fills, fills the earth with, with animals and humankind. In other words, there's a forming and there's a filling. There's a beginning and there's a completing. And here there's no one to complete Adam. There, there's no one like him. Maybe he didn't see that just yet. I think that's probably why he brought the animals by. Two by two by two by two. They paraded by Adam. Now he was naming the animals, which is establishing the man and the woman's vice regency over creation. But he's naming the animals also to see that he doesn't have one like himself. And so God puts a, a deep sleep upon him. God is going to shroud the creation of the woman in mystery. 
Man's not adding ideas to God about how to make the woman. This is all God's doing. The woman was made by God, but it's interesting that he took a rib, or that could be translated a part, a part from Adam. He took the woman, the part from Adam, to make the woman for Adam. You know, it's interesting, the part, it shows that God has designed this woman to be a partner, a confidant, a friend. There's no inferiority here. There's no secondary status for a woman in this context because she's called a helper. That, that word for helper is actually used of God. God is known as the helper of Israel. God brings divine aid, divine provision, so as to save Israel. So the context of the woman is in that, that she is divine grace to the man. Many of you have heard what's often attributed to uh, Matthew Henry, which is that the woman was not made from the top of man to rule over him, nor from the foot of man to be trampled under him, but she was made from the side of man to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and close to his heart to be loved by him. This is the nature that God has designed this, this partnership, marriage to be a partnership, companionship. Do you sense that in your marriage? I mean, you do notice that the value of the woman is in her friendship, not in her being a lover, not in her being a childbearer, not her, in her being a worker just yet. She's first a helper, a friend, a companion. Does your wife, let me ask you men, does your wife know that she is a partner, a friend, a co-heir of grace? If you're not sure, you can ask her, she's sitting next to you, or you, you can ask her on the way out. In fact, I would ask you to do that. To what degree do you understand my holding you as an equal partner in this life? But not just, not just a partner as friend. She's a partner as a complement. Notice he says that, he's a, that she's a helper fit for him. That idea of fit is like a counterpart. So the woman is going to be clearly different. We know that. But, but the same. Kind of the same but different. Like a, a right hand and a left hand. The woman is intended to be, has been created to be different from the man different. Now, I, I don't want to make, you know, a lot of people make hay with differences between men and women, and, and they can often generally be true, but they don't always land on the heart of every person. So let me just go a little bit more aerial. Well, when you think about a woman versus a man, they have a different perspective on life. They have a different perspective on you. The way you perceive yourself is not the way your wife perceives you. They have a different history different experiences. They have different gifts. And all of these differences are meant to add to the union. So one author said it this way, in what sense is blue equal to red? They are equal in the sense that they're both colors of the spectrum. Apart from that, they're different. God has so designed differences. He's divinely appointed the woman with differences for the betterment of the union. But here's the rub. The rub is that they often irritate one another. The differences that the woman has, the man has to, are irritating, frustrating. You know, the first year of marriage, you're thinking, how can I change them? And yet they've been divinely appointed to be that way. 
You know, this is the difference between uh, traditionalism and complementarianism. Traditionalism is where you draw your roles for men and women out of the culture. So you may, you may have been raised where dad always cut the grass and mom always cooked the meals. Well, that, that's a traditional thing. It may be fine for you, but it's traditional. It's not necessarily complementarian. You go to the East, and men are often cooking. I don't know who cuts the grass, but, but men are often cooking, so the roles aren't the same. The thing with traditionalism is you're drawing principles from the culture, whatever culture you're in. Complementarianism is when you see the woman has been made uniquely different from you, and you are rejoicing over those differences. You're needing those differences. You're living in light of them. You're encouraging the woman as she's different because you know you need that grace for your marriage to succeed. Now, when I was younger and Carol and I got married back in December of 85, I was very immature, uh, both scripturally and just as a man. And so I only saw our differences as those external differences. So when we got married, the first thing I recognized, I, I may have shared this about 12 years ago, um, that was the last time I preached this text, but uh, the, the beauty products, the hair products, I, I just remember being different. Um, I didn't have any. I didn't have any hair products at all. Uh, I would buy shampoo in a drum, uh, 50 gallons. It was cheaper that way, and you could use it for about 14 years, and it wouldn't bother you. Carol, she had eucalyptus infused with hydrangea leaves from water from the French Alps. And I'm looking at the back of this ingredient listing. You didn't have Google, so you couldn't figure out what half these things were. They were just made up things. And I remember thinking, wow, we are so different from each other. But it wasn't until later that I began to understand her nuance, her gentleness, her, her not implying negative motives was necessary for me not just in terms of raising the children, where she would often guide me in terms of how to perceive and understand things. I came to need that, essentially. It wasn't a help, but it was, an, it was necessary for me as a parent, for me to say, what do you think is going on here? She is bringing, she's a partner. But not just that, just in dealing with people. I'm convinced I wouldn't be employed here if it wasn't for her. I mean, she has guided, instructed. She has been given certain gifts that are necessary for the union. She's truly a partner. That's the way marriage is to be. That God has designed marriage to be a partnership. Not a division of labor, but a combination of different gifts for both companionship and to complement the weakness in your life. Okay, secondly, marriage is designed to be a gift. A gift. You notice when the text was read that God's the main player here. God's doing the speaking. God's doing the forming. God's doing the taking. He's doing the building. He's doing the bringing of the woman to the man. You know, it's kind of a beautiful scene when it was read, when Kimmy read it. It says, and the Lord brought the woman to the man. So you can imagine like a father walking a bride down the aisle. This is a gift. God is giving a gift to both the man and the woman in bringing them to each other. You see the response of the man. The first human words were poetry. You know, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
What he's saying is, finally, one like me, he says, this at last. Finally, someone like me, but different. Paul kind of words it this way. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, she is the glory of man. That jewel in the crown, the beautiful jewel, the one that sparkles. But God is giving a gift to man. That's what it's envisioned. God bringing the gift to the man to say, here is one like you, and she'll help you know you. The wife helps the man know himself because she's like him but different. It's an incredible gift that God is giving to us, even in our own self-discovery, coming through the bride. This may be a point of repentance for you if you have failed to see your gift. I asked Carol this morning before coming here, I said, do you feel as if I treat you like a gift? And she goes, yes, I do. Thinking she wasn't telling me the truth, that she was, didn't want to sink me right before preaching, I said, do you feel like a gift all the time? She goes, not all the time. It's a point of repentance. I will figure out when she doesn't feel like a gift this afternoon. I'm going to ask her, when don't you feel like a gift? What do I say? What am I doing to cause you not to feel that way? This doesn't intimidate me. This is for all of us. Nobody has marriage locked down. We all need to continually, by the grace of God, be working on developing this, this oneness, this marriage that he has given to us. So it's, it's a gift. But thirdly, this marriage is to be an exclusive union. An exclusive union. You, know, you see in the text in 24, he says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Think about it. God has so created marriage to be one male and one female. God has created this from the beginning. And we see it, of course, in Genesis chapter 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, the idea of homosexuality, transgenderism, same-sex marriage, they're talking points now. They're political talking points. Uh, But it was established from the beginning what it was to be. In other words, you can change laws. There's no doubt about that. You cannot change nature. The nature of marriage is there is one man, male and female, he created them. And the way that this exclusive union is forged is by leaving and cleaving. Leaving means to loosen, to depart, to step away from the family from which you've come. And then to cleave or hold fast means to stick together. Like glue, you're holding each other fast. This leaving and cleaving is so that you can leave the two families of origin and forge a new family with new commitments and new trust and new affections that are primary and the original families being secondary. Not unimportant, just secondary to the primary and the new union. You know, did you notice in this whole passage that love isn't even mentioned in in marriage? In this first wedding ceremony, there was no love mentioned. I, I, I think God wants us to focus on marriage as a covenant. That's what it's defined as in Malachi 2.16. It's a covenant. A covenant is a promise that you're making, not for the day, but for the life. You're promising to love. 
And what you're doing is you're promising, and this happens at every wedding ceremony, you're promising to God and you're promising to one another that regardless of what comes, I will love you and I will stick with you and I will never go back. You know, parents need to help with this too. You know, parents of children who get married, they have to help create that separation so that those new bonds can be forged. Forged. So, so it's a covenant. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this covenant. He says, wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but mutually binding promise of future love. A wedding should not primarily be a celebration of how loving you feel now. That can safely be assumed. Rather, in a wedding, you stand up before God and your family and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. It is the covenantal commitment that enables married people to become people who love each other. Only with time do we really learn who the other person is and come to love the other person for him or, or for herself, and not just the feelings and experiences they give us. We don't know who you marry. When you get married, you think you know that you don't, and you change over time and you change together. This is the beautiful thing about a covenant. A covenant is we're going through life together. It's a beautiful thing. God has designed marriage to be this exclusive union that displays the covenant of God. And then fourth, marriage is designed to be a oneness. Now you see this at the end of 24. He says that, and they shall become one flesh. What does it mean to be one flesh? Well, it means this solidarity, right? It, it means this single history. It isn't two lives in one home. It's one heart in two lives. It, it, it's, it's, it's not an event. It doesn't happen when you get married. It says they become one flesh. Over time, do they grow into one flesh. And this one flesh is seen uh, just like we're made, right? We've been created both body and soul, and so the one flesh is body and soul. There's a sexual implication here to the physicality, the oneness, that God has created sex to be a gift, not simply for the continuation of humanity and not simply for the prevention of sin, but, but sexuality between the husband and wife is to be a point of unique intimacy, a unique closeness, which is shared with no one else. It's a point of love between the husband and the wife that brings you together to be one. This is why marital infidelity is so crushing. It's so crushing because it, it invades that area of intimacy that's not in, in pornography as well. It invades an area of intimacy that is off limits to all. But it's not just a sexual oneness, it's a spiritual oneness. It's a common love for God. The husband and wife rarely express their faith and pursue God in exactly the same way. That's fine. But there ought to be this increased concern for one another. You're walking with one another to heaven. You are pilgriming together in a closer proximity than anyone else you will. And are you as a husband and you as a wife, are you significantly involved, engaged, invested in, in the preparation of your wife to stand before God or your husband, 
We're going to see that next week in more detail. But, but I mean, there should be no praying together. I'm not surprised anymore when I hear many couples say, no, we don't pray together. I do tend to ask, why don't you pray together? Is it fear? A lot of times it's fear. And I'll often say to the man, if you hear a noise downstairs, do you send your wife down there? He says, no, never. Well, if you're going to confront perhaps an armed thug in your house, I think you can probably pray with your wife. If you have that kind of courage, lead your wife in prayer. I mean, that's a beginning point. To the Christian, praying is like breathing to the human. So let me encourage you just to even begin there my grasping her, or ladies, grasping his hand. God, have mercy on us. Let our marriage be honoring to you and life-giving to us. So there's that oneness. Again, this might be a point of repentance. What I find the struggle with oneness is selfishness. Selfishness is the threat to our oneness. This idea that if you have to have it your way, and then oneness is going to be a constant, it's going to be at a distance from you. That selfishness, that, that me first, that I want what I want when I want it, that is a threat to the oneness of the marital union. Okay, the, the last um, dimension or design, if you will, of marriage is that marriage, that God has designed marriage to be a foretaste of glory. And I want to try to explain this to you um, a little more because I don't think it's as obvious in the text. Uh, marriage is, God has designed marriage to be a foretaste of glory. Look at 25 with me. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked, not ashamed. So, um, you know, Jesus, in, in Matthew 19, says that God spoke these words, and yet we know that Moses recorded these words. So I want you to keep that in mind for a minute. Uh, God says they were naked and unashamed. So what he's giving us is this picture of nakedness, right? So there is a physical nakedness, I have no doubt about that. But I think the, the fundamental point of this is that there was a spiritual nakedness. And, and what I think he means by that is that there was a transparency, there was an openness, there was a there was a, a knowing that the man knew the woman. The woman knew the man. Uh, there was no shame. Now, shame comes in chapter 3 with sin. So there was no shame. It means they didn't, have, they didn't sin against each other. They weren't hiding from each other. There was no barriers to fellowship. Can you imagine this for just a moment? There were no failures. There were no past sins. There was no bad history. There was nothing. There was nothing impeding them from knowing each other in a dramatically intimate way and loving each other. There was no fear of discovery. There was no, if they really know what I'm really like, then they might run from me or they might pull back. There was none of that. Can you imagine that relationship? That's what God designed for the man and the woman. Now, you know what happens, of course. Chapter 3 follows quickly on the heels of chapter 2. Sin enters the world, and what comes with it? Shame. And what follows shame? Covering. They began to cover themselves. They begin, to, they begin to cover themselves by blaming one another, by excusing themselves, by, by, by pushing aside, obfuscating. We've never known this kind of intimacy. I mean, in this world, in this life under the sun, no one's known this kind of intimacy. We wear masks. I see them right now. 
That was funny. <laughs> but we do wear masks. We, we, we hide ourselves. We, we can't afford to let people know. You see this on the virtual community all the time. Instagram, Facebook, they're fine social mediums. But they can be a place where we're promoting something we're really not, or we're hiding things that we really are. And, and what, what's beautiful here is that when they tried to cover themselves, they were ineffective. It was God who came and found them. And God provided a covering for them. God, in grace, covered them. And that was really a picture of what he would do in the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament, where the sacrifices of, of bulls and goats, that would be a covering of sin so that the people could still relate to God. But we know in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats never took away sins. It was only a covering of them. That sacrificial system pointed to a day when one would come, a perfect lamb, and not just cover our sins, but remove them. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, the Messiah, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes them away. So what we have here is a look to the gospel, this God providing a covering for their shame. They lost that intimacy. And it looks forward to that day when God would provide a son who would provide a covering. And this is what we mean by the term propitiation or atonement. That in the life and the death of Christ, that his blood was shed to cover our sins from the sight of God, that he would turn away the wrath of God over our sins, and he would establish us in a position of favor. This is incredible. This is the central heart of the Christian faith, that we believe that Christ the Messiah has come so as to restore what was lost in 25, that he has come to cover us. Now, why am I sharing this in a marriage? Well, because Paul takes that whole beautiful story of Christ bringing people back into intimacy with God and he puts it in the context of marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, I'll just touch on it today. We'll get into it more next week. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he is showing this model of how Christ saves the church, delivers them from sin, removes their sin so that they can be intimate again with God and with each other. He frames all that, that work of Christ in the church, and he puts it in the context of marriage. So our marriages now are to be those places where we're beginning to again taste the intimacy that God has for us. A little bit by little bit, incrementally moving forward, repenting of our sins when we sin against our spouse, and little bit by little bit, we're enjoying more of the intimacy with our spouse here, but it's pointing to a day when we'll enjoy it in fullness and glory with God and with one another. In fact, our marriages are really to be displaying the glory of God through the intimacy. In other words, the way that we love one another in marriage, the way that we're faithful to one another, the way that we communicate with one another, the way that we care for one another, sacrifice, all of this is a display for the world to see this is how God will take care of his people. Our marriages, your marriages are not an end in themselves. Your marriages have been 
It's a gift to you that you can display the glory of God by the way you love each other. And the world sees that's the way God takes care of his people, by the way they take care of themselves. Now, folks, I know this may leave you in a world of hurt right now. And I would simply access the grace of God through repentance. God, have mercy on me. If you're struggling right now, then today, go home. If, and ladies, you can lead in this. Men, lead in. Grab, God, help us in marriage. We have lost our way. We're struggling. We're having a hard time. We're not communicating. We're not treating each other as if we're gifts to one another. Repent and ask God for the, the mercy that he, has, he says is unfathomable and unmeasured. And, and let him pour it out to you as you begin to try to walk rightly. And, and if you're single and you want to be married and these kind of talks are for, let this be to you a call to seek God. First, let you find yourself with a companionship, a fellowship with God. If he's given you the desire, ask him for grace that he would make that desire known or to find peace with it. You know, my marriage can actually be idolatrous, good ones and bad ones. You know, it can be idolatrous. I want it so bad, my happiness is tied in it. Marriage is only pointing to a greater marriage between Christ and the church. Or it can be idolatrous that it's so bad, I can't wait to get out of it, that you see your whole life through the lens of a difficult marriage. It's just a pointer to what will be all that we have with God. So let's take a minute and just ask God for grace right now to understand this, to walk in this. You know, if I'm raising up issues that need to be talked about, then speak to an elder, speak to myself, staff member. But let's just take a moment of quiet reflection and ask God for grace to walk out his design well and to take the steps to do that. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.